Hi, I'm Robert Tursik, and I am one of the founders of the company Direct Education and also part of the team that created the COVID Smart training program for COVID-19 in the workplace. And we created this podcast, which we're calling Go to Work Smart, as a way to help people understand some of the dynamics behind the COVID-19 pandemic. And today as a special guest, we've got somebody who plays an integral role at Direct Education as our chief clinical advisor. Her name is Angela Vassallo. Angela, welcome to the show. Wow, I can't believe we're finally doing our first podcast after that. I mean, I just think of when we talked about building this company, I would like to get the billing as a co-founder as well, but the fact that we talked about doing this and here we are, this is so exciting to me. <laughs> it is. It's very exciting to get started on the podcast. And of course, the course has been up and running now for quite some time and people are using it. Thousands of people are taking COVID-19 training with COVID Smart. Um, but today, what I wanted to do was help people understand what an epidemiologist does. And oh, of course, it's very convenient. Words. It's very convenient that you're like a big expert epidemiologist, a nationally recognized expert in epidemiology. Um, And so I thought we would start the conversation by saying, what the heck does an epidemiologist do? And and what are all those letters after your name? Okay, one question at a time. So let's define epidemiology because I think this is a problem. Epidemiology is the the official sciency definition is the distribution and determinants of disease. So where is disease and why is it there? That's what epidemiology is. It's looking at disease within people, right? It comes from Latin. A lot of people confuse it with epidermis. My mother asked me when I told her years ago that I was going to be an epidemiologist, she said, will you be doing a lot with the skin? Because she thought epidermis. <laughs> and I said, Hopefully there won't be a lot of skin infections, but yes, I will try to track those as well. So <laughs> we track the outbreaks and unusual occurrence of disease. In particular, my focus has been, and my love has been infectious disease, but there are epidemiologists that study smoking cessation or dietary changes to cancer outcomes, let's say. Right, my world right. has always been infectious diseases. So anywhere from staph infections at a hospital, to post-op infections, to E. coli in the urine. That's the kind of stuff I look for on a daily basis while working in hospitals and healthcare. Um, But I also worked during Ebola. I've been involved in lots of other outbreaks because I've worked anywhere from hospitals to public health and nursing homes to government contracts to consulting in the industry. So I've seen a little bit of everything. So I have several initials after my name. I'm not one that likes to really brag about myself because I think it's kind of obnoxious when people do that. I have a master's in public health. I have a master's in healthcare administration. I'm certified in infection control and I'm a fellow of APIC. And APIC is the Association for Professionals in Infection Control and Epidemiology. So for folks who do infection control epidemiology, it is the premier largest worldwide organization and fellows are senior um, and there's only, a, I think, a couple thousand, maybe 1500 of us in the world. So that means you've sort of surpassed and you're at the upper levels of your career. So there, that's me. And you participate on the COVID-19 task force at APIC, as I recall. Yeah, I helped found the APIC COVID-19 task force, and that started from, uh, you know, like, I think it was around February when we have this, you know, there's a situation, we're all monitoring it, let's get together. So we were ad hoc getting together and then advising the CDC 
um, looking at guidelines. And around March, it started to get really hectic, and we started having daily morning calls with CDC leadership to make sure that what was on the CDC website was clear and concise to the general public. Because for us in healthcare, it's easy to read and understand, but for everybody else, it's like reading a different language. And we wanted to do the same with the APIC website as well. So it's turned into a weekly meeting at this point, but uh, it's been all sorts of things. And for this epidemic in particular, uh, those updates and making that information accessible to regular folks, that's really important because no one has the answers. The answers are forthcoming. And everybody wants the answers. There's a lot of demand for it. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that in a moment and some of the chaos and the confusion uh, that has arisen in the last six or eight months around this disease. But, but let me come back to a couple of things you mentioned. So it is true. A lot of folks get the word wrong, uh, epidemiology and epidermis. But that's not actually so, uh, so terribly off base because uh, that phrase epi, uh, that, you know, the, the, the distinction of um, endemic disease and epidemic disease comes from Hippocrates, the father of medicine. And um, he noted that, you know, there's diseases that live among the people, those are endemic. And then there's diseases that come from the outside and they kind of land on us. And that phrase epi means on, on top of, it's like on the people. Demos is the people. So epi means it landed on us, which is what happens with an epidemic. And so, uh, you know, if you think about the skin being on the outside, that's what's on you as well. So you can sort of see that those two Greek words, uh, those, those words have roots in that Greek word. But anyway, that's where it comes from. It's like this thing that comes on the people, right? And that's a really creepy image if you think about it. But of course, with a vaccine, that's what's going on. Like these little particles are out there and they're floating around, <laughs> landing on you all the time. So there we have a little bit of etymology or word, word origin, I guess, uh, for that. But it goes right back to the father of medicine, which I thought was kind of interesting. Because for most people, epidemiology seems to be a pretty modern thing. And actually, let's take it for, you know, for real, like historically, uh, medical understanding of communicable disease was not that great, right? There were all sorts of crazy theories that reigned in the Middle Ages and so forth. And it really is around the 1600s and 1700s that medical science starts to emerge. And then there's a study of disease. But modern epidemiology, I think, really starts to happen around in the 1900s, uh, around cholera outbreaks. Um, and so well, uh, this is a relatively new profession. Let's, we like to refer back to Jon Snow. Uh, John um, Snow, not from Game of Thrones, the other John Snow. The, the actual original. real John Snow who managed a cholera outbreak in London, in Soho in London, in, in the mid-1800s. So 1854 for nerdy epidemiologists who care about this sort of thing. John Snow was tracking a cholera outbreak um, where we'd seen some contamination of the water system. Uh, and as a result, now there's a historic pump in the Soho neighborhood of London that is... A, a sort of a shrine to epidemiology. So people in my world, when you make a trip to London, everybody poses with this pump. So we think of him as the father of modern day epidemiology, but I love your use and, and referral back to the Greek terminology. And, and Yeah, right back to the roots, man, all the way. Sure thing. Sure thing. But, but so the Jon Snow connection is an interesting one because it actually relates to a topic we're gonna get into very soon, um, hopefully in our very next conversation, uh, which is this idea of miasmas and bad air, because that was the prevailing notion, right, before Jon Snow came along. Uh, there had been some people who theorized that there were these little tiny things that we couldn't see. They didn't use the word microscopic at that time, but there was this idea that there were little particles that could spread around the disease. But the prevailing wisdom before Jon Snow was miasma, bad air, like swampy air is what causes you to get sick. And, and you know, there's lots of lore there where people would go to a place for the air, you know, a place where there's better air. The idea is cities had bad air. 
what they didn't realize at the time, of course, is that cities also had people in close proximity and stuff like rats and fleas that could bite them and spread diseases. All of that came later. So the, the importance of Jon Snow is he's the first person to really kind of break the grip of that prevailing notion of miasma. Um, that's going to be important when we talk about aerosols, but that's not today's episode. So we'll do that another time. Let's bookmark that and come back to Jon Snow. Meanwhile, tell me about I, epidemiology in the modern time, because I'm curious to know, like, what is the story in the 20th century? Even around the like 1918 flu epidemic that we hear so much about these days, that was like a real milestone for epidemiology as well, right? So let's let's just think about Jon Snow for a second. I do have a little anecdotal back point that I want to give you about okay, that. So well, miasma, right. miasma was not only a common concept, let's say, in Europe and the Americas, right? So we have this, like, stuff in the air. But then, as an example, my family was Sicilian. And so my family is Sicilian and full of doctors in Sicily. And what my family did for all the doctors in my family hundreds of years ago is put leeches on the blood because the belief in Southern Italy, Northern Africa, and Southern parts of Europe is that the miasma would create bad blood. And so then you have to put the leeches on a person's skin to suck out the bad blood in their mind that then takes out all disease. So that continued into the late 1800s and honestly, early 1900s. Cause you know, miasma didn't just go away, right? We're still doing some CDC we're still following some guidelines that are a little bit old. So it takes a while for people to make changes in, in cultural practices, especially without internet and without easily promulgated guidelines and, and information. Well, frankly, the internet doesn't help that much because it spreads around a lot of crazy ideas anyway. So they take on a life of their own on the internet. So then we had the flu outbreak, you know, the, the flu outbreak, the Spanish flu, which really traveled throughout Europe and the United States. And the interesting thing about this Spanish flu outbreak is that it's following, it has sort of a similar, we've looked at it for this COVID-19 outbreak in the sense that there was the up and down phase where at a certain point, lots of people were getting sick and dying. And then, and then after a while, the numbers went down. And what we saw in practices is that people got a little bit lax. They were tired of being quarantined at home. They were tired of masking. Sounds okay? familiar. Exactly. So then people started going back out, going back to schools, going back to restaurants, walking around more in the city. And as they did that, and people also, families lived more people together in smaller amounts of space. So you have one person coming back into the home. Now the entire family is sick. The numbers went back up. And so we have this cultural shift in how public health and epidemiology is practiced in general, especially in the United States, but I'd say throughout Europe, it became more common to talk about face coverings. It became more common to talk about good hand hygiene. It became more of a common practice to think about interactions with others and germs on surfaces. Right. Because if you come from a world where your grandparents or your parents taught you that, oh, it's bad blood, that bad things are in the air and it's going to give you bad blood. You're not really thinking the doorknob is contaminated or the, the, the pump, the water pump in Soho is what's causing the cholera outbreak. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. So we were right. learning new things. And I do think that the flu, the flu of 1918 caused us to shift differently when it comes to large, massive outbreaks or pandemics and how we respond as a public health community at least for my world that's our that's our touchstone after the john snow incident we sort of have this and we have this those are our early and it's worth noting that in 1918 we didn't have the ability to see a virus we could see bacteria and there was a lot of theory in the outset of that disease that it was a bacterial infection 
And in fact, they found some examples of bacteria uh, in early patients uh, in the U.S. Army um, when they were preparing troops to go over to Europe for the world for World War One. They found a bacteria, and they assumed that it was a bacteriological infection, which of course isn't true. It wasn't the case. It was a virus, but they couldn't see a virus at that time. And it wasn't until many years later that we were able to actually see viruses with a microscope. So part of what's amazing about this, we take it for granted today, but part of what's amazing is that it's a kind of forensic science in the sense you're like a detective. But the detectives who discovered this, the scientists who discovered these, these causes, they couldn't actually see what they were trying to track down. They had a theory about it and they found all sorts of evidence. That's, that's certainly true with, with Jon Snow and his detective work, you know, measuring all the places where incidents happened around London, around that famous water pump. But it's also true in the 1918 outbreak because the, the pathogen they were looking for wasn't something that was visible. So one of the amazing things about epidemiology is that it's taking on conventional wisdom, let's call it folklore, Folklore ideas, uh, which kind of today prevail on the internet as well. So we are, we're not past folklore. People kind of come to their own conclusions and they use common sense, maybe uh, conventional thinking about how a disease might occur. They're not entirely wrong, but they're not right necessarily. And then they'll come to the wrong conclusion about what they should do to prevent it. And so uh, epidemiology very much has been the use of science and evidence to kind of persuade people to give up those folklore habits. And you can see where I'm heading because, man, right now with this coronavirus we are having a huge confrontation between folklore spreading on the internet, bad information, let's say, stuff that might make sense to you. It seems reasonable, it seems logical, but it's not scientific. And then you have scientists who are quietly, slowly asserting the evidence, and they're trying to persuade people to see actually that there's a different explanation for what's happening. And both of them might lead to the similar conclusions, but we might have very different ways to contain the disease or react or respond. And I think there's a big debate going on right now in the US about that. So here I just leapfrogged us ahead 150 years from John Snow. To <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. I, I just, it was like fantastic to be on the shuttle. <laughs> well, we, we could get into all sorts of other things because of course, you know, every 20 years, there's another scientific, you know, breakthrough or advance or some sort of way to identify diseases and so on. But I guess the main thing there is that this is relatively modern. You know, many of the advances that we take for granted today all came about in the last 100 years since that 1918 flu epidemic. I do want to explain one thing, and I want to make sure we don't confuse the two. So as an epidemiologist and being surrounded by epidemiologists, I think we're not great at sharing our message with non-sciencey people. I think even, even to describe what we do is an entire sentence, right? Like, I can't just say I'm an epidemiologist. Maybe right now after COVID, but prior to COVID, I couldn't walk around and just tell random people that I'm an epidemiologist. When I do that, I, I get two things. I would either get a dead stare, hmm, or I'd get a, oh, wow, yeah, that's cool. The dead stare means I don't know what that is, but it yeah. sounds smart, so I don't think I want to tell her I don't know what it is. So then I would say something like, well, did you see the movie Contagion? Yeah, well, think about the Kate Winslet character, right? The Kate Winslet character that worked for the fictional CDC in that movie, and she's there on a cot in convention center. Then you got the Marion Cotillard who's out in a village, like trying to take specimens and work with people. They're both epidemiologists. Marion Cotillard is the one that's in the field. Kate Winslet is the public health one that's there in the city. She's in the field as well, but she's like writing policies and giving presentations on whiteboards. She's the public health person. Even though she's an epidemiologist, she was very focused on public health messaging. Whereas the Marion Cotillard character was less interested in the public health messaging and more about doing the epi work in the field. Yeah. And you don't always have the two mixed together. 
there are many epidemiologists who work at health departments, so they know how difficult it is to explain what they do, and their job is to figure out how to say it so that consumers and their local population understands. But there's a lot of epis behind the scenes, too, that focus on various interests, not just infectious disease, but maybe dietary research or, or any, anything right. else you can think of it that right. maybe what they do is straight science and research. Maybe they're That's leading right. studies and they're not as concerned about whether or not the general public understands it. They're adding to the evidence that then we're supposed to use as public health folks to explain it to everyone else or as doctors in hospitals to make decisions about treatment. But it's okay. really not a group that always speaks the same language. And that's been interesting during COVID because to me that's obvious, but it's yeah. never been more obvious now since COVID because I'm realizing not everyone speaks our language and a lot of us are not good at even explaining what our language means outside of a certain circle. Well, that's partly because epidemiologists tend to speak in clinical settings, right? They're not really out in the public that, that often. I mean, there are some, certainly, you know, Dr. Fauci is a person who's well-regarded and is well-known, but there's not that many folks. And, and, and being a public speaker is also kind of a hard skill, and, and it's not always one that favors scientists for reasons we'll come to in a future conversation, I think. Let me go back, though, to a few of the points you just mentioned, because there's a lot there, and I want to unpack all the things you just said. So one of the things you pointed out is there's lots of different types of epidemiologists. That's a really important thing. We we'll want to get into that. What I was really struck by when we first met, we were chatting, and, and you pointed out that um, not all epidemiologists are doctors. Some are, and some are nurses. And, but in fact, even if they're in a medical setting, uh, like a hospital or a clinic, they don't necessarily practice medicine because they're there to do a different thing in the hospital or, or the clinic. Can you describe the role of the epidemiologist in a traditional hospital? I love this question, so it's going to take me a few minutes because I can go on a diatribe. <laughs> so a couple of things about an epidemiologist. It's not it can be a doctor, the person can be a nurse, the person can also be a public health individual with a doctorate or with just a master's degree. So a medical epidemiologist will often be an infectious disease doctor, but not always. It's someone who is a doctor by trade, so can generally treat patients and who practices medicine, but has also studied epidemiology, which is very different than medical school. It generally tends to be a public health degree. So medical epidemiologists are looking at the treatment outcomes and the care of the patient and then how science relates to it. And they're generally trying to translate that in the most digestible format to hospital leadership, to other doctors, maybe a ER doctors who's not so as familiar with- That's a medical epidemiologist, a medical epidemiologist. What so that's someone who's really practicing in a hospital. The I next see. type, Another type, and we're make these are generic terms, right? Okay. So another type of epidemiologist would be someone you see at a health department who is a straight epi, usually has a master's in public health or a doctorate in public health, or maybe a PhD with a focus on epidemiology. Those folks tend to be researchers who are also speaking a public health language, but they're not going to be doctors who treat, and they're usually not nurses either. That's where my world comes in, and that's the background I have. Tend to most of the time do research and at one point or another will have worked in a health department or at a CDC or some sort of federal level, creating policy based mm -hmm. on science. Okay, so now I have to bring in another idea. I'm sorry. So yeah, no, go you, ahead. Keep referring, you keep referring to public health, and that's an important concept. And I think a lot of folks aren't actually that familiar with public health. In fact, this COVID-19 epidemic uh, pandemic is 
causing people to get a new awareness, maybe new appreciation, I hope, for what public health is. In the U.S. in particular, we revere medical doctors, medical doctors that do work on us, that help us with our health. But that's private health, right? Tell me about what the difference is between a medical doctor in a hospital and then public health. What is public health and who are those people and what do they do? So every city and county will have a public health department. Public health departments are spread throughout the United States. So think of, for instance, for us here in Los Angeles, we have the Los Angeles Department of Health, which is public health. So it's literally a government entity that is overseeing and monitoring the health outcomes of its community. CDC- of the general population, right? Exactly. So they're not working on one particular person who's got a particular condition. They're actually focused on the, the general population. So it depends on how large the health department is. And that's a really interesting question, Rob, because big health departments like Los Angeles County if there is a unique situation with one specific patient, oh yeah, you would, might have a doctor or a, a researcher focused on that because they don't want it to spread. So an example I can give you is, we didn't have any Ebola patients in Los Angeles right. during the 2015-16 outbreak, right? Texas, yeah. Right, but if we had in Los Angeles, I knew the team that worked on that, they would have been focused on one human being. And okay. it would have been both the doctors who are epidemiologists, but also the researchers and even some nurses too. They would have put a lot of eyes on that one human being. However, when you have most people in health departments, what they're focused on is the population, the larger population, and what can they do to keep the population healthy? So in the trickle down, in, in the uh, algorithm of, of the top health department in the United States, is really health and human services that then funds the CDC. And health and human services is, is the funding larger portion, so a little bit more government policy directed. And then CDC is the public health science side of our national public health force. So those are doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, public health folks who are doing research to improve the outcomes of healthcare throughout the United States at a macro level. They're focused on a micro level, one person, if it's a unique disease that they don't want it to go any further. But in general, it's a larger level. And then that trickles down to the state level health departments. So we have California Department of Public Health. We have the Texas Health Department. Each state has a health department. And then larger cities will have their own city or county health department. And so when you have a local outbreak, Let's say, for example, if we had an outbreak in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Health Department would track that. If it's a big enough deal and they need to, they report, the chain of command is they report that to the California Department to make sure it's not spreading throughout the state. Because the Los Angeles folks are not driving up to San Francisco to check out what's happening there. So they share that with California Department and then California reaches out to any of the local They'll even send in state people as backup. And then if it is important enough or significant enough to cause harm to the United States, then the state health departments funnel it to the CDC. So we have, that's how our public health system in the US works. So if I work at a hospital and I have an infectious disease that needs to be reported, my team will then report it to the local health department. Then the chain goes from the local to the state and then the state goes to the CDC. Okay. That's good. More than That's you've ever wanted to know. Well, so another way to think about public health is uh, when public health is successful, you don't really see their work um, in the, and we take it for granted. It's um, probably one of the most thankless jobs in the world in that respect. 
And bear in mind, before we had public health departments, we had infectious diseases like typhoid and diphtheria and polio and so on. And there were a lot of diseases really until like, you know, right before my childhood, those were not that uncommon. Uh, You know, even when I was a kid, there were people who were getting these infectious diseases. So the great success in the 20th century is that public health became organized. Uh, You know, modern governments had public health departments and gradually every government did. And the public health department successfully eradicated dozens and dozens of infectious diseases that used to plague humanity for thousands and thousands of years. And we take this entirely for granted. And you folks get no thanks and no praise. But here you go. Here comes your shout out now. So exult in this moment. (laughs) I mean, it's a really big deal. It's sort of like editing in a movie. And I know you're like, wait, what? But we both work in media. We know this. So if you're a really good editor in a film, nobody sees your work because they're watching the film. Good if point. they notice the editing, then it's considered to be kind of a hack job, right? So really good editing and really good sound editing just kind of disappears. And really good public health just kind of disappears with the diseases that go away. You know, when our president says that that disease will magically go away, what he's really saying is someday we're going to figure out how to stop this thing. And it'll be people in public health who do a lot of work behind the scenes. And then it will magically disappear for the rest of us. <laughs> and get no credit for any of it. Thankless, nameless. I'll just tell you there are hundreds to thousands of them in Atlanta at the CDC, working every day, writing, doing everything they can. They've worked hard to have a career there. All they care about is getting it right, getting it on the website. This is so painful for those folks because all they want to do is fix things behind the scenes so we don't have outbreaks. That's what real public health is. And you're right, when it works, nobody knows. (laughs) <laughs> this is a particularly difficult disease because it's a novel virus, right? So we don't know it. it it's, you know, it's something that crossed over from an animal. We're not exactly sure how that happened. And we don't know all the side effects of this disease, even at this stage, you know, eight months into this, this pandemic, there's a lot that's still unknown. And people get frustrated because we're so conditioned to medical science being able to give us a pill or give us a cure or give us a <laughs> shot to make us feel better and we're okay, right? That, that, that's kind of yeah. the expectation when you go to the hospital. And when you come to the hospital with COVID-19, they're like, Sorry, there's not a lot we can yeah. do. We can try to make you a little more comfortable or boost your, your little... response. It's really frustrating for people, but they don't understand that you know science is still trying to work out all the kinks in the system and what this, this nasty disease actually can do. We really don't know. You know, I'd say for those of us that live in science and live in the medical world, there's also an art to science. There's an art to practicing medicine. I myself am not a doctor, but as an epidemiologist and person who works in infection prevention for most of my career, I walk hand in hand with doctors and nurses. And when you're in a hospital and you're a patient or you're visiting a family member and you see them all kind of standing together at a, at a nurse station talking, they're usually trying to figure out if they're all on the same page about the outcome, if they're all on the same page about the diagnosis, or what do you think about this? What do you, it's, it's a lot of conversation. And it's a lot of learning and pulling, you know, wait, in school, I learned this, or I read this one paper, or you know what did work for this other patient? Okay, so you come together as a team, and that's an art, right? Right. That's not just somebody went to school, read a book, and here you do this. It's not that simple. But we have difficulty expressing the nuances of medicine and of epidemiology, I think. And Mm -hmm. so to me, what's most interesting has always been the art of which pieces do we take to solve the puzzle? What helps us the most this time around? And of course, that debate continues. Um, in our next conversation, we're going to talk about one of the most lively debates regarding COVID-19. 
And that is around the very, very loaded topic of aerosol transmission. Oof. But we're not going Oof. there yet. We'll do, we'll do that for another conversation. That was so exciting for me. That's the one I'm really looking forward to. It's a juicy topic, but it also will expose, I think, to the general public, some of the stuff that typically happens behind the scenes that they're not aware of in, in public health. There's a very intense debate going on because the medical understanding is constantly changing and new information is coming in. You know, I want to actually talk about a slightly different thing because this is the thing I find the most fascinating about epidemiologists is that um, when when there's an outbreak of a disease, let's let's leave COVID nineteen aside. Let's talk about okay. something like Ebola or SARS. I can do that. Um, Ebola, for instance, uh, you know, when there's a field outbreak of Ebola, it can rage. It's highly it's highly um, infectious, right? So it can rage in a population, and then suddenly a bunch of epidemiologists show up, and and six weeks later, the disease kind of it stopped. I know I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's kind of I amazing. Mean, like, tell me, tell me what happens in field epidemiology because I think this is like, this is sort of like the Tomb Raider approach to epidemiology. This is the part that's so fascinating to me. All right. So, field epidemiology, in its simplest terms, is practicing, practicing the looking at the spread and how to stop the spread of a disease. In in my mind, when it comes to infectious disease. So whether that's in a refugee camp in the Congo, right? How do we stop the spread of cholera? How do we stop the water system from getting contaminated? How do we make sure that, you know, the latrines are separate from the, the drinking fountain, drinking water bowl? You bring epidemiologists in who are out in the field who take that science that they know so well and put it into practice. Because it's one thing to be a bench scientist. It's one thing to be on a study. It's another to take that information and make it real. It's another thing to, on your feet, have to make decisions and go, look, this is what my study showed me, but right now I've got to figure out what works best. That's also an art. Mm -hmm. But I have to tell you that being a field epidemiologist is not just being out in the field somewhere remote in how we often think of it. To me, hospital epidemiologists, infection preventionists are actually field epidemiologists that work in a healthcare facility. So what I liken it to is, instead of being at a refugee camp in Goma, or ex instead of being the person that's responding to the Ebola outbreak in Liberia or Sierra Leone in 2015, you're working, when I, when I hire new folks, you're working looking at urinary tract infections in an ICU in this building. And so your goal is to make sure your Foley catheters are inserted in a sterile fashion and that nothing happens to cause the patient to get a urinary tract infection. And that's just as important as if you're tracking clean water out in the middle of the Congo in a refugee camp. You're doing it for a building. So you're a field epidemiologist using that knowledge you have in real-time practical settings. And the best way I can describe it is when we have patients come into emergency rooms or emergency departments. Patients don't come in with a sign that says, you know, I have meningitis. You've got to figure it out. You've got to figure out what they have. That's why ERs are always so exciting. That's where all the thrill seekers are because everyone's hunting to figure out what you have. And so that's where your epidemiology infection prevention teams can be really helpful to an emergency room because they might call and say, look, I have this strange situation, this presentation of a patient. What do you think about this? Or what do you think? And you'll have an infectious disease doctor go, oh, I read a paper with a very similar description. Everyone gets really excited. That's field epi. That's us making sure that nothing spreads within the building. 
Okay, so field epidemiology doesn't have to happen in some faraway place or in a jungle or something. It can happen right here in your local hospital or clinic. And it is true that every hospital and clinic in the U.S. has an epidemiologist on staff, right? That's, that's part of the organization. So what's required through our guidelines, uh, mandates through Health and Human Services is an infection control department. So hospitals, nursing homes, and ambulatory surgery centers, so outpatient surgery centers, are required to have someone who oversees infection control, which if you've been listening and I just described epidemiology to you, that's really just field epi within a building. We just haven't been able to marry the two terms together, I think, until COVID-19. <laughs> well, and with COVID-19, now suddenly everybody has to, in a way, be their own epidemiologist because we can hmm. have the virus just about anywhere. I mean, at this stage, eight months into the pandemic, it's safe to say the virus is everywhere. That means every workplace, uh, you know, an office, a factory, a warehouse, a store, a shopping center, a school could be a place where there is COVID-19 present. And so some of the fundamental principles of epidemiology are some of the things that everybody needs to learn for their own safety and for the people around them. In future episodes, we'll get into some of those practices. And of course, that's what we teach in the COVID Smart Training Program is exactly that. We've taken a sort of a short course of basic epidemiology and we've we, or infection prevention, I should say, and we've, we're training that, we're teaching that to workers in the workplace. Rob, now, I want to call out, you just said yeah. it's been eight months. I don't know if you noticed, but I sort of took a gasp and closed my eyes. To be an epidemiologist, to work in infection prevention during this time period, I've really lost track of time because March feels like yesterday. You said eight months. I was like face palm, like, oh my God, eight months. Most of it feels like <laughs> years ago. <laughs> For me, it's like, what? That was just last Tuesday, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> time goes fast if you're in the middle of the thing. I, that's for sure true. And for those poor people who are healthcare workers, of course, in the front line, they're losing all sense of time because it's just the same day over and over and over again for them, unfortunately, especially as we seem to be yeah. heading back into round two here as the second wave comes up. One of the things you mentioned a moment ago when we were talking about field epidemiology resonated with me, and I think I should circle back to this because it's yet another interesting aspect of epidemiology. We tend to think about doctors as people in hospitals and you know, physicians as people in a medical facility, a clinic, and uh, they're there to know a lot about biology. They understand how we work. Sometimes they know a little bit about psychology and so forth. But an epidemiologist is, is concerned with the people broadly, right? That's built into the name. That's the demos part of it. And so for epidemiologists, for sure, they have to understand biology. And that's not just biology of us. It's the biology of infectious um, micropathogens and so forth. But there's also an understanding of people. So they have to be sociologists. They have to understand how people move around and what people do in cities and so forth. This is quite an interesting aspect that actually lots of other doctors and medical experts don't have to know about. And the third thing that you mentioned that I think might pass by a lot of people unnoticed, but I want to make sure we underscore it, is that epidemiologists are also concerned with engineering and engineering mm. comes in many forms. These are the systems that transport people around in cities. These are the systems that send clean water, hopefully clean water into our homes. We take this stuff for granted, right? Most people don't think what happens when you turn on the tap, but an epidemiologist needs to be aware that there's a whole system there and disease could be transmitted through it. That's why we treat water systems. There's other kinds of engineering as well that affect epidemiology. When we think about how disease can be transmitted, sometimes it's microscopic particles. And so sometimes an epidemiologist will be informed by particle physics or fluid dynamics. And so it's a, it's a science that covers a lot of other scientific fields and then brings them all together to bear on public health. And we think of the city then as a large system full of people 
And, you know, you have to understand the psychology of those people and the sociology and how they move around. And then all the systems there that are there to keep those people alive and getting them transported and getting them fed and getting them water and so forth. These are all factors that affect epidemiology. It's really kind of interesting when you look at it that way, because it's, uh, you know, as a social science, uh, epidemiology has a lot to say to us about how we talk to each other and how we relate to each other. We don't tend to think of that as the first thing, but you, I know, are very conscious of all this stuff. It's always on your mind. Well, I can just tell you, you know, you reminded me how sometimes I don't even express myself well, and I think of myself as a great communicator. But working in epidemiology in a hospital setting or a healthcare setting, doing infection prevention work, I also have to be, I have to have deep knowledge of construction and maintenance right. and engineering. Right. Tell us about that. Yeah, give a story. Yeah, so I have lots of stories, but I'll just tell you, it's a common practice and it's an expectation when you go through hospital licensing and surveying, infection control oversees and works closely with constructions, construction and engineering. So, so the water system, making sure wastewater does not interact with clean water in a healthcare system, right? You don't, you have to have, for instance, clean water system, obviously for drinking, obviously for preparing food and things, but a large part of hospital business is surgery, especially communi community hospitals. And surgery doesn't run without sterile processing, which is the department that sterilizes the surgical instruments. And that's all based on water for the most part. We use giant machines that look like dishwashers kind of that are steam sterilizers, gas sterilizers. But when you don't have water, clean water, or you have some sort of water outage at a hospital, you can no longer do surgery because wow. sterile processing that, that sterilizes the instruments, those giant machines can't function. So you cut down a huge service line in income, and it also affects patients if you're a trauma center, because if you're a trauma center, you've got to be able, ambulances have to know Yes, I can bring in a, let's say, a car crash patient immediately through your ER and get them into the operating room. That's why you have trauma centers distinguished because it is related to engineering. If your facility is not capable at all times of doing trauma surgery because of either the doctors that are on call or let's say there's been an earthquake and your sterile processing is shut down, you have to close entrance to those patients. So infection prevention epidemiologists are largely involved in that. At the same time, hospitals get old, buildings get old, so we have to do construction. We need to upgrade the waiting room so they look nicer. We want to build a new neonatal intensive care unit because we got a donor to help us buy new, I don't know, patient base. And when we do that, we bring in general contractors, usually general contractors that are skilled in healthcare and building in a hospital. but. There's a whole team of industrial hygienists, general contractors, hospital maintenance that work together with the infection prevention epidemiology department to make sure that when they're tearing down walls, pulling up old flooring, putting in new walls, bringing in new equipment, that there is no disruption to the HVAC system, to air conditioning, to heating, so there are no dust particles going through the ventilator to the air, right, going through your air conditioning unit to the cafeteria and the other patient rooms, that the water system isn't contaminated because of something that happened. So there's a lot of work that goes into hospital construction. It's not just hospitals, nursing homes, surgery centers, any healthcare construction, you'll almost always, and you should have an epidemiologist involved because you have to plan with the construction team 
and you have to make sure they understand because they speak two different languages, right? right? General contractors want to get the job done quickly, want to use the best, best tools possible, want to get a good bid and get their job done. Epidemiologists like to go slow. They want you to be careful. They want you to do your job very carefully and make sure that you can use the best possible equipment and tools. And let's not use that type of drywall because it's a little more dusty. Let's use this one. Well, that increases the cost. So it's a fine line of understanding engineering, but also being able to communicate with these construction engineering folks that don't necessarily speak epidemiology. And that to me is inherent in my decades of work, but I realize it's not always common knowledge to people outside of healthcare and epidemiology. I mean, I've been involved in construction in my own home. And when I'm talking to my contractor, I'm asking questions. He's like, how do you even know that? And I'm like, oh yeah, that, that is not normal. I picked it up on the job. Huh. <laughs> that's, so interesting. Yeah, that's not a normal thing, huh? That's a really fascinating concept. So epidemiology is the study of the city, the study of the way people live and all those systems. And then you're tracing how diseases spread through those systems. Where I keep coming back to it. Like yeah, it, distribution it, it, determinants of disease, which is a terrible definition. But the way I say it is, where's the disease and why is it there? Distribution determinants. Where is it and why is it there? So what I don't want is some sort of newly erected, beautiful wing in a hospital, and then suddenly my cancer patients have aspergillus in their lungs. Where do you think that would come from? Well, some problem with the walls, some problem with the ceiling, some old ceiling unit, ceiling tiles, or some old walls, pieces that were pulled down and no one covered the HVAC system so that it wasn't going through the air. Because the patients that are most susceptible are gonna pick those things up first. Now, the stuff you're talking about right now actually is really relevant to a lot of businesses that are thinking about bringing back their workforce because most companies that have offices in office towers are confronted with the question of what do we do with our air conditioning system, our heating system? These are, you know, air circulation systems that could potentially spread particles of this disease, and they have to confront that. And in some respects, I'm sure they're consulting with firms, but I wonder how many of them are consulting with epidemiologists. Uh, maybe mm. that's a discussion for mm. a future conversation. We could bring in Exciting. one of those experts. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Angela. This has been a great conversation. Super fun way been to look fun. at epidemiology, uh, all the different aspects, and there's probably more that we could discuss. Uh, Angela Vassallo is one of the leading experts in epidemiology in the United States, and she is a member of the COVID-19 Task Force at APIC, the Association of Infection Prevention uh, of, of Professionals, sorry, in Infection Prevention and Epidemiology. And of course, they are our partner in creating the COVID Smart Training Program, which is available right now. Uh, the COVID Smart Training Program is designed to help workers in modern workplaces, whether it's an office, a factory, a school, or a store, come back to work and be as safe as they pass possibly can under the circumstance of the pandemic by following the best practices for the prevention of disease. You can check it out right here at gotoworksmart.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you real soon with another episode. Yay, bye. It was fun.